0: How's everybody doing? How, how are you guys doing in your small groups? Those of you that are in small groups, how's that going? Going through 2 Peter, the questions there. Uh, I'm excited about the small groups and I would encourage you, it's always, you know, we're about halfway through Peter and so uh, it's all. you can s- still jump into a small group anytime, anytime. Uh, now, next week's a little different uh, next week, I'm not going to preach in Second Peter. Brian's going to bring a message from from First John, and so we won't have the questions for Second Peter. And so we thought that so that that Thursday night, we're all going to those that would like. There are a number of groups on Thursdays, and even if yours is on Wednesday, you can join us here on Thursday night for a time of prayer and praise together. So put that on your calendar, seven o'clock. And then today, I just want to highlight once more the lunch after church. Uh, the wives of the elders have decided once a month, first Sunday of the month, they're going to provide us with lunch. So that's exciting. And so this, this uh, first one is my wife cooked the meal. And so I can tell you it's going to be good. So if you're worried, uh, it's like her specialty uh, when, when her family comes over, they always go, are we having this uh, chicken and rice thing? And so everybody loves it. So hope I haven't built it up too much in case it isn't that good. But anyway, so that's the commercials for today. Uh, thank you, Patty, for reading our scripture. Today, uh, we come to chapter two in our series through Second Peter, looking at sort of half of that chapter, sort of one unit of that chapter, but... Uh, Couldn't do it all in one week. We'll be looking at verses one through 10. But to help us understand these verses, we need to see them in context. Okay, you guys are learning. Context is king, is a good principle to have when you're studying the scripture. So let's begin with a, a brief review of chapter one. This might, if you haven't been here for chapter one, this might not make a lot, a total sense, but just pick up what you can. Peter knows that his death, so Peter's writing this letter, he knows that his death is close at hand. So he takes pen in hand and writes a letter, and this letter is meant to stir up the church. And he does this by reminding them of established truths of their faith. These aren't new believers, he's reminding them of the the faith they believed in, including the Christ-like qualities the faith nourishing qualities they should be striving for, specifically virtue and knowledge and self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and sort of encapsulating all that is love. Peter says that practicing these qualities confirms their call and election. How does it confirm their call and election? Because those who God chooses, the elect, the called, He also provides them with everything they need for life and godliness. He does this through the knowledge of Himself, specifically His Word, specifically, specifically, His great and precious promises. This is what God has promised to you. This is who God is and what He's promised to you. So those who have faith in His promises become, uh, Peter says, more like Christ, they partake in the divine nature, and less like the world, they, they forsake the sinful desires of this world, they increase in Christ-likeness, thereby confirming their call and election. And this confirmation, this assurance of their salvation, of the eternal destiny, of their eternal life with Christ, is really the heart of chapter 1. Peter also, as added confirmation, focuses on the specific promise of Christ's return. We can have a sure hope that Christ will return based on two sources that Peter gives. From Peter's eyewitness testimony of the majesty of Christ at the transfiguration, sort of a preview of his coming in majesty and glory, and from the Old Testament prophetic word. Peter then concludes chapter 1 by defending the prophetic word of Scripture. He says that Scripture is not to be interpreted based on the desires of men, because Scripture does not originate with men, but men spoke from God. Scripture is the inspired word of God. And again, all of this is meant to stir up the church, to cause them and us to examine our faith. For those who are increasing in these qualities of Christ, Peter's seeking to confirm their election, to give them assurance, to give them confidence in their relationship with God and in their eternal salvation. He wants to give them a sure hope that Christ will return. He wants to give them assurance of God's promises in the, in the Scripture. But for those who are not increasing in the qualities of Christ, Peter is seeking to stir them up as well, to cause them to examine their faith. Is it true faith? Is it based on the correct knowledge of God, the knowledge taught by the apostles and found in the the word, or is it something else, something less, something false? So from one perspective, chapter 1 provides the true believer with confirmation and assurance of their faith provides them with a a foundation that the Word of God is, the the Scripture is the Word of God, and that Christ will return. But from another perspective, chapter 1 provides a a warning to those who call themselves believers but are not. And it's this warning that Peter continues in chapter 2. He's calling those who are in the church, those who say they're Christians, to examine their faith. As in chapter 1, he's still seeking to confirm and give assurance to those who have true faith. But in chapter 2, his focus shifts to warn against the destruction that will come to those who do not have true faith. Chapter 1 focuses on what God has done for us, that we can live a godly life and have assurance of our eternal salvation. Chapter 2 focuses on what God will do to us, if we do not live a godly life because we don't actually have faith and should not have assurance. Chapter 2 has no commands for us to follow. It's just a rather uh, terrifying description of what happens to those who turn from the established truth of the faith and follow the, the false teachers that are infiltrating the church. The main point of chapter 2 is a warning that destruction awaits the false teachers, these false teachers and their followers. It's, it's really the flip side of what we read in chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, sort of the heart of chapter 1. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your call and election, for if you practice these qualities, the qualities that we've talked about, you will never fall For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, just to be clear, it's not that you earn this entrance uh, by practicing these qualities, it's that you've been given these entrance, the entrance by grace, and with that grace, you've also been given everything you need for life and godliness. You've been given the ability to practice these qualities by God, by God's grace. And then here in chapter 2, Peter says, If you turn from the truth and follow the false teachers, you will fall, and there will be no entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord, but instead, eternal destruction awaits you. Remember, this is Peter's legacy. These are uh, quite probably his final words to the church. And he wants to be very clear about the serious nature of what he's writing. The stakes are high. There's nothing higher. They're heaven and hell, eternal life or eternal destruction. And therefore, we must take Peter's word seriously. And I must communicate them fully. No, no pulling punches here. I know that people often come to church so that they can hear things that make them feel good. Just a good, a good word, uh, a little... A little uh, a little push for the week so I can make it through, feel better about, about who I am, about what I'm doing. Things like, you're a child of God. You're a child of the King. God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. Or even, or, 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 or even though you're, you keep falling in this area of sin in your life, God offers unconditional love and forgiveness. Or uh, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And I could go on. And I'm not saying that those uh, feel-good things are not biblical when understood properly. The problem is, it's possible to read or preach only from those feel-good passages. But the Bible is filled filled with passages, books even, that are not designed to make us feel good about ourselves. Sorry. They're designed to stir us up to cause us to examine our lives, to cause us to feel some discomfort about where we are in our faith. As Paul wrote to Timothy, Scripture is breathed out by God to teach, to reprove, to correct, to train in righteousness and to equip us for every good work, to stir us up to live for Christ and to warn us about not living for Christ. And Second Peter, especially chapter 2, is that kind of warning passage. Peter wants to be very clear about not only the joys of trusting in Christ, the joys of living for Christ, but about the terrible consequences for not trusting in Christ, for not living for Christ. So as we look at the first half of chapter 2 today, I'd ask that you allow the Spirit of God to speak to you through His Word, to cause us to feel discomfort where necessary, to stir us up, that we might heed the warning that Peter gives and avoid the destruction he describes. So let's turn to the first 10 verses of chapter 2. They begin with the warnings against false teachers. In verse 1, Peter writes But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there were false teachers, will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. We're going to walk through this. If you remember in chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, Peter was talking about the Scripture, the prophecy of Scripture, specifically the prophets, men who spoke from God. But along with these prophets that spoke from God, he says, false prophets also arose among the people, and in this case, the children of Israel. It seems that whenever and wherever God's truth is presented, counterfeits will appear. In the Old Testament, there were false prophets. We read of these men and their destruction in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods that... Same prophet shall die. So historically, false prophets arose among the children of Israel, and the trend continued in the early church as false teachers appeared. The false prophets stood against the true prophets of God, and these false teachers were secretly, apparently in the background, whispering words, uh, standing against Christ and his apostles. The Spirit-inspired apostles brought the word of Christ... From God, sound doctrine, truth, and the false teachers then took these truths and used used it to secretly bring in destructive heresies. That word heresies is actually uh, uh, the Greek word. It's not a translation. It's what's called a transliteration where you just take the Greek and sort of write it in English. At one time, it referred to a, a group or sect, not necessarily in a bad way, but emphasizing their diversity. Okay, these these had different views from these people. But in the early church, it came to mean the teaching of groups or sects who claimed to be Christian, but did not line up with the teaching of the apostles. So these false teachers were secretly bringing uh, destructive heresies, things that were contrary to the established truths taught by the apostles who spoke from God. Notice also, uh, Peter writes, when he writes, just as there will be false teachers among you, it may sound like these false teachers have not yet arrived, that they would come in the future, but the rest of the letter indicates that that they were already spreading these heresies. It was was happening as Peter was writing. So there will be false teachers among you is more uh, of an ongoing truth. There will be, or there will always be, false teachers among you. And this has certainly been true throughout uh, church history. Again, whenever, wherever the word of God is taught, there will always be those who seek to twist it for their own destructive purposes. So both in Peter's day and in ours, there are false teachers on the scene. And the first thing we learn about their destructive heresies is that they deny the master who bought them, really the central focus of their teaching is they deny the master who bought them. Now, what does this mean? Well, the master is, of course, Jesus. And so, these false teachers are in some ways denying Christ. We'll talk about that denial shortly. We'll get some, a little hint at what it, what it could be about. But why does Peter say the master who bought them? Some have taken this to mean that at one time, these false teachers were purchased or redeemed. They were bought by the blood of Christ. They were believers. But that doesn't really fit the context of this letter or uh, the Bible. Let me give you two possibilities that do fit the context of this passage and the rest of Scripture. First, bought them may mean that Christ's death paid the penalty for their sins, but God did not apply that payment to them because uh, they never truly placed their faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. Meaning Christ's death on the cross, in a, in a grand scope of things, was sufficient to redeem all sinners. But only those who trust in Him received the benefits of that sacrifice. Or second, bought them could just mean that Christ's death appeared to pay the penalty for their sins because they initially appeared to know Christ. They came into the church, they said the right things, they did the right actions, They were not only false teachers, but false believers. And we could talk more about this, but I'm going to wait till next week uh, till we get to the end of chapter 2. There, Peter speaks in general about those who turn from the knowledge of Christ. So we'll come back to this idea of security and salvation, losing your salvation. What does that mean? But for now, back to denying the master as with most heresies, false teaching, Jesus is in some way diminished. Some aspect of who he is or what he accomplished is being denied. But, but Peter doesn't specifically tell us what that is. What are they denying? However, he does tell us what the result of their denial will be, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So this is uh, serious business. Denying Christ has severe and eternal consequences. Peter uses that word destruction three times in verses 1 through 3. Twice in verse 1, the false teachers were bringing destructive heresies. So they were destroying with their, what they were teaching. And they were uh, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Bring destructive heresies and receive swift destruction. And once in verse 3, the false teacher's destruction is not asleep. More on that uh, just in a second. So what is this destruction involved? Well, it's the Greek word apoleia, something like that, which means ruin or loss, damnation, perdition, that word, utter destruction. And in Scripture, this destruction is not a one-time instant event. It is not annihilation. Okay, you're you're destroyed, you're gone. It's an eternal destruction. That's what Paul says of those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. This is also reinforced, again, back in verse 3, there, uh, by Peter. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. I mean, their, their condemnation, I mean, it's, it's set, and it will happen, and their destruction is not asleep. The destruction is not asleep. It's not unconscious. It's felt. It's eternal. So be very careful about denying the truth of who Christ is, Denying the truth of what Christ accomplished, for it leads to the swift punishment of eternal destruction. Now in verse two, we get a hint of the content of this denial. So what are they denying about the master who bought them? And what many will fall and many will follow, this beginning of verse two, their sensuality, they are the false teachers. So right after saying they deny the master who bought them. Peter says, many will follow their sensuality. Sensuality simply means blatant sexual immorality. Based on this and what we read in the rest of this chapter, it seems that the destructive heresy of these false, te- these false teachers are promoting, uh, was promoting sensuality. They were denying something about Christ that caused many to be led into sexual immorality. One possibility is this was an early form of uh, the Gnostic heresy, Gnosticism. Have you heard of that? Gnostic to know. uh, The Gnostics taught they had secret knowledge. And uh, one of the reasons why we think this may be possible is because Peter speaks so much about knowledge. And these guys, these uh, false teachers, may have been talking about their own secret knowledge. And this would fit with what Peter calls secret heresies. And one of the things they taught was that all uh, physical matter, including the physical body, was evil. Matter was evil. Spirit, good, matter, evil. Therefore, the physical death and suffering of Jesus, they would say, only happened to his physical body, which he only inhabited for a short time, uh, left before the death, and which was unimportant, even evil. Basically, this was a denial of the humanity of Christ and really the the importance of his sacrificial death. And based on this understanding of the body-matter-spirit divide, what a person did with their own body uh, didn't matter which led to sinful, sensual acts being overlooked as unimportant. Now, this is just a possibility, Peter doesn't say, but whatever these false teachers taught, their denial of some aspect of Christ, of of the doctrine, the faith that the apostles were teaching, led to people following them into sexual immorality. And unfortunately, this was not uncommon in the early church. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 2, Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. I mean, you're going beyond these Roman Greek pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. There was arrogance and an entitlement about sexual immorality in the church. The same arrogance seemed to, be, seemed to mark the false teachers in Peter's day. And in verse 18 of 2 Peter chapter 2, for uh, speaking of the false teachers, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Arrogance and immorality go hand in hand for these false teachers. Notice verse 10 and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority bold and willful they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones they despise authority because they cannot stand any control on their passions this helps helps us understand verse 1 uh, where uh, it, it says they deny the master who bought them they don't they don't want a master They deny a master means what? Submission to authority. But they despise authority. Maybe the heresy involves saying Jesus was their Savior, but not their Lord, not their master. So they could continue in whatever sin. I'll take the the salvation. I'll take the ticket to heaven, but I'm going to live like I want in this world. One final thing to note about verse 2, the consequences of the actions of these false teachers, uh, was far-reaching. It had an impact on the whole church and the whole world around them. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. This disobedience caused others, likely those outside the church, to blaspheme the way of truth. The gospel was being defamed because of the sexual immorality of those who claim to follow Christ. Anybody ever heard of that in our day? Yeah, I won't. I won't list examples. But what a terrible situation for these false teachers to be creating. And how did they accomplish this? Verse 3 tells us, And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. They were greedy. They wanted to exploit more and more people. Sin loves company. Right? I mean, if so many people are involved, it can't be wrong, right? Right? Causing them to fall into sensuality. And to accomplish this, they used false words. They gave reasons why people should abandon biblical rules about sexuality. They might have said something like Look, uh, don't be a prude. It's a new day. It's okay for young people to experiment sexually, it's okay for a couple to live together before they're married. It's okay for a husband and wife to gratify their sexual desires with another person. Did I say this was a little PG-13 rated sermon? Okay. But it's Peter's fault, not mine. It's okay for a man to sleep with a man or a woman to sleep with a woman because as Christians, you're forgiven and free from the consequences of your sin. Or as a Christian, only your spirit matters. What you do with the body is unimportant. Or as a Christian, you're free from the Old Testament law or whatever they needed to say to break down the biblical morality of these people. And as, though, uh, and as I thought about the, the sexual immorality of Peter's generation, it caused me to realize that there's nothing new about the sexual immorality of our day. As Solomon wrote, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. In our culture, and even in the church, there are those who push for what they believe is is progress in, in how to look at sex or gender, but it's not progress. It's just the same old thing, the same old greed and exploiting and false words, the same old sensuality that leads to destruction. Speaking of these false teachers in verse 19, Peter says, "...they promised them freedom." But they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. They promised them freedom. Sound familiar? The push for unrestrained sex, for free love, uh, was there long before the 1960s. The false teachers were taking the grace of God and perverting it into sensuality. And because of this, Peter makes it very clear. Be warned, false teachers, You and your followers have nothing to look forward to but eternal destruction. But apparently, there were those who didn't believe in their destruction. Maybe part of the heresy denied God's justice, His eternal punishment of sin. Maybe the heresies emphasized only the grace and love and forgiveness and mercy of God and denied His justice, His holiness, His wrath, His judgment. Yes, there is a heaven, but no, no hell. Like the the man I mentioned last week that I heard say, I don't believe in judgment. Well, whether you believe in it or not has absolutely nothing to do with the reality of it. Your belief changes nothing. And Peter wants to make that clear. So he turns to the Old Testament where he gives warnings from history. The point of verses 4 through 10 is to warn us that since God has punished unrighteousness in the past... He will punish it in the future. Uh, just to be clear, in case anybody uh, has a doubt of this, it's a, the Old Testament God and the New Testament God are the same guy. The same God. I mean, Jesus came and he, in the New Testament and he, and he, and he uh, made a way for us to escape the wrath of God, but it's the same God. So, 4 through 8, uh, three examples. And then he draws his conclusion in verses 9 and 10. First, in verse 4, he gives the example of the fallen angels. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, angels are glorious and mighty beings. But all their power and glory were of no use when they sinned. God did not spare them. Peter says it straight out, God cast them into hell, which includes chains of gloomy darkness where they'll be kept until the final judgment. And in Revelation 20 verse 10, we read the fate of the leader of the fallen angels and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The point is, God has and will judge the angels who sinned. And Peter warns the false teachers and all who follow them, if you despise authority like the devil and his angels, if you seek to deceive God's people like the devil and his angels, if you reject the lordship of Christ like the devil and his angels, you will hear the sentence of Jesus, which he foretold in Matthew 25:41: Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. As sure as eternal judgment of the lake of fire will come to those, these fallen angels, it will come to these false teachers and to all who follow them, to all who deny the master who bought them, be warned. Peter then gives the second warning from history, the flood. Verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. In Genesis chapter 6, we get more of the details of this, starting in verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God does not spare the ungodly, the wicked. He blots them out, he destroys them, he sweeps them away, he removes them from the face of the earth. And Peter's point is God will do the same to these false teachers. And all who pursue wickedness, sexual immorality, God will sweep them away. He will judge them, he will destroy them. But notice Peter gives a note of hope, but, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others. Noah, who preached the need for repentance and the righteousness of God, he found a favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Therefore, he and his family were preserved. God's judgment will fall upon the ungodly, but for those who receive his grace, for those who trust in him, we will be saved, we will be protected. And that takes us to the final example, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. I know you're expecting another F. I had two Fs, and then I thought about the fiendish cities. Ooh, that was good, right? Anyway, uh, but then I couldn't, the D, the next one isn't an F either. So anyway, verse 6, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. We should remember that these cities were judged specifically for their sensuality. The sensuality that these false teachers are somehow promoting in their denial of Christ. We find the story in Genesis 19. God sent two uh, not fallen angels down to see how these wicked cities, how wicked these cities had become. And there they encountered Lot. He begged them to come with him into their house, and they eventually complied. And in verse 5 we read, But before they lay down, that's the angels, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we might know them. And just to be clear, these men did not want to make friends with them. They wanted to know them in the biblical sense, in the sexual sense. And Peter says, look to how God destroyed these sexually immoral cities, and don't think the same thing will not happen to those who follow in their footsteps. Be warned. And then Peter adds, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the, of the wicked, for as... That righteous man lived among them day after day. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Again, there's hope. There was rescue for righteous Lot. Now, if you know the story of Lot, you know he was not the most upstanding citizen or father. Read Genesis 19 to get more info on that. However, While far from perfect, Lot demonstrated a commitment to God by receiving and attempting to protect these angelic visitors and by obediently fleeing the city. When it did come to the destruction of the city, Lot took off as he was commanded. He also agonized over the wickedness of those who lived among him. He lived among. He didn't follow them into their sinful ways. He didn't follow his culture. And Peter is implying that if, if we can be like Lot, if we can reject the false teachers of our day and obediently embrace the ways of the Lord, then we too can be righteous and rescued from this dark world. So Peter's given uh, three historical examples of past judgment upon the wicked, and he wants, to be, uh, he wants to be fully understood. So in conclusion, he gives the lesson from history. This is what Peter wants his readers to learn. Verse 9, he saved Lot, basically. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Peter presented both Noah, who found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and who heralded the truth of righteousness, heralded the righteousness of God, and then sort of tormented yet righteous Lot, he presents these two men as examples of the godly who were rescued from trials. And we too will be rescued from our trials if we are godly. If we, by God's grace, through faith, trust in Christ, we will be made righteous by God. And that's the positive side, the assurance that God will rescue the righteous. So if you're, if you fit in that category, if in chapter 1 we were talking about the confirmation of your election, if those qualities are found in your life, you're feeling confident about that, then feel excited. God will rescue you from His judgment. From, he will rescue the righteous. But Peter continues with the negative, the warning, the Lord knows to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Like the angels who sin, the godless people of Noah's day, and the wicked people of Sodom and Gomorrah, the unrighteous will be punished and will face God at the final judgment. This is the fate of the false teachers and those who follow them, all who reject the master who bought them, and for emphasis, Peter adds, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Again, the false teachers were leading people into sexual immorality. And they were rejecting the authority of the apostles. They were rejecting the authority of God who appointed the apostles. And they were will be severely judged. That's the lesson from history that Peter's teaching. Be warned, both heaven and hell are real. God will rescue the righteous from hell and deliver them into heaven. And God will judge the unrighteous, condemning them to an eternity of destruction separated from Him. So that's, uh, that's uh, our not-so-feel-good passage for today. Full stop. That's, that's how far we, we get. But in conclusion, I want us to consider or reconsider some of what uh, Peter's warnings mean for our lives today. Sort of an emphasis on these things. What warnings are there for the church today? For us as individuals in the church today? Peter's goal is to stir up the church. Stir up the believers. Stir up those in the church, whether they're believers or not, with reminders of the truth. So let me give you a few reminders from our text. First, remember false teachers still exist. Therefore, we should do well to follow the warning Peter gives in chapter 3, verse 17. You, therefore, uh, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the air of the lawless people and lose your own stability. Take care. Take care not to be carried away by false teachers. Like no other time in history, we're exposed to information overload, right? Right? If we want to know something, all we have to do is Google it, right? But know this, the world is filled with false information, false teaching. This is certainly true of our secular world, but unfortunately, it's also true in the church. There are churches and pastors who are embracing the sexual immorality of the LGBTQ, etc. community. That our church, that our culture celebrates. So we must be diligent to guard ourselves against these seductive false teachings of this world. And the best way to do that is to know the truth, to have a relationship with God, to have the Spirit of God, to know the Word of God, so that when false ideas, errors, heresies, seek to penetrate your heart, your mind, your church, we can reject them as not being from God. We know the truth and we can separate it, not based on what I say, but based on what the Word of God says. So first warning, remember that false teachers still exist. Second warning, remember hell and judgment are real. Divine judgment is coming not only to false teachers, but to those that follow them. And to anyone who denies the master who bought them, judgment will come to all who do not trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, as their master. Do you know people who don't trust in Jesus, either at all or really half-heartedly? Well, and this will not make you feel good. The Bible teaches, Peter teaches, Jesus taught that those people are bound for eternal destruction, for judgment, for hell. And this should have a great impact on us, right? Remember, we're to nourish our faith with, uh, what was that final one? Love. We're to strive to have love. Love for those around us. And it's loveless to not let people know that hell is real and judgment is coming. It's loveless to allow people to go about their lives as though eternity didn't exist or didn't, doesn't matter. It's loveless to act as if you're okay with their sin, which is leading them to destruction. It's loveless to not pray for them. It's loveless not to share the full gospel, the full heaven and hell gospel with them. So second reminder, hell and judgment are real. And third... Remember, God will judge the sexually immoral. This is just as, if not more, relevant in our day than it was in Peter's, because we live in a culture that's turned sexuality uh, upside down. Wrong is called right, and right is called wrong. A culture that's covered in darkness. A culture where graphic sexual images are just a, a click away. Therefore, we need to be counter cultural Christians. We need to remember that practicing or advocating sexual immorality of any kind is in fact heresy. It's an offense against the person and work of Jesus Christ the Lord. Encouraging and practicing sexual activity of any kind outside marriage is a rejection of God's divine plan for you, for sex. For It's abusing the gift that God has given us. And it's a denial of the master who bought us. Because Jesus died that we might be free from sin, including sexual immorality. Therefore, we must glorify him in our bodies by submitting to his will for our sexual fulfillment. That is, and has been from the beginning limited to a man and a woman in marriage. There is nothing new about sexual immorality. And we must resist it and warn against it today as passionately as Peter did in his day. So, third, remember that God will judge the sexually immoral. And fourth, and finally, not really a warning. I think we've had plenty, we got that, right? We got the warning down. So, let's, uh, an encouragement. Remember that rescue from hell and judgment is offered to everyone. The good thing about a warning is that they're a warning, they warn us of what is yet to take place, which means. As long as we still have uh, breath in our lungs, as long as we're still living, there's time to heed the warning and avoid the destruction. And so the good news is, like Noah and Lot, anyone can be rescued from judgment, from eternal destruction. All they need to do is truly put their faith in the Master who saved them. The Master who bought them with His blood. Then it says in verse 9, uh, excuse me, when it says in verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly, it doesn't mean He, he only rescues the perfect, uh, because he, he doesn't, because there aren't any of those. Lot was far from perfect. I'm far from perfect. All of your thoughts to the contrary, you're far from perfect. But if we put our trust in Jesus Christ to save us from our sins and to impart his righteousness to us, to make us righteous before God, and we give ourselves to him as the master who bought us, the Lord of our life, we confirm our call and election by making every effort to be like Christ, seeking to follow him instead of the false teachers, false philosophies of this world. Then, as Peter wrote in in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must trust in the Master who bought us. And we need to shine the light of the gospel. We need to proclaim and stand up for the true, full gospel. The gospel that not only offers forgiveness from our sin but frees us from present and future sins. A gospel that gives us everything we need for life and godliness through the promises of God. A gospel that gives us the Holy Spirit who who comforts and convicts. So, So as Sean leads us in communion today, as we remember the sacrificial death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, remember also that He's given us, That is, those who trust in Him, those who who call Him and live as if He is our Master, who bought us our Savior, He's given us the responsibility to proclaim His message of rescue from hell and judgment to our world. Would you pray with me as Sean, the worship team, and the ushers come forward? Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this warning, Father. I pray for as it has gone out, as your word has gone out, Father. I pray that if there are those here, those listening online, Father, I pray if it struck a chord within them, if they thought, this is a warning I need to take to heart. I've followed these false philosophies, these, these things that the world is promoting. And I need to stop that. I need to return to Christ. I need to return to His Word. I need to follow after Him with all my heart, soul, and strength. I need to love Him instead of the things of this world. Father, I pray that they would do that. They would make that commitment today. Lord, and they would seek out help in that. If, if they're struggling in areas of sexual immorality, they would seek out help. Seek out people in the body to pray for them. To hold them accountable to be their brothers and sisters in this, Father. Lord, we we thank you for your word and we thank you that we can be rescued from this destruction. That Jesus came that we might experience deliverance, rescue, that we might be redeemed. I pray we would honor and worship you for that. In Christ's name, amen.